take your Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We in Hebrews chapter 10, continuing our series through the book of Hebrews, and we're going to be looking at verses 26 through 31. 26 through 31. We're going to be talking this morning about the danger of deliberate sin. The danger of deliberate sin. Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse number 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We live in a culture uh, where increasingly sin is no big deal. Right? Look, the, the world is increasingly becoming more and more secular, and, and this means that we're actually in some ways even just losing the category of sin altogether. You see, if there is no God, uh, there is no lawgiver, there, there is no universal moral standard uh, that governs the universe, uh, and, and then the category of sin is done away with altogether, right? No God, no law, no wrong, no sin. It's, it's as simple as that. Now, thankfully, people often act inconsistently. Sometimes they borrow from a Christian worldview. So although uh, they don't believe in God or they don't believe in God's law, uh, they, they still have a, a sense of morality uh, inborn within them because they're created in the image of God. And so oftentimes they live as if there is sin, even though uh, by their profession they don't believe uh, that there really is sin. But what we see happening over time is that the longer society uh, continues to assert that there is no ultimate standard of morality, then the less and less people will live as if there is. But over time, uh, as the concept of sin erodes, from the consciousness of people, so their behavior begins to erode as well. Moral decay sets in, and that's what we're seeing in our world and, and in our culture. We're living in that right now. Uh, we're living in the product of people for who uh, a couple generations now have been minimizing the idea of sin. Well, I think we should all agree that the Church of Jesus Christ should be different, right? We should stand separate from the trends of the world. We're called in the Bible to be a holy people, uh, which has the idea of being separate or distinct from the world. But what we know is that inevitably what occurs in the world begins to influence and make its way into the church. It's inevitable because we live in the world. Right? We, we breathe in the philosophy of, of the world around us, where, where we go to school, the music that we listen to, the movies that we watch, 
the friends that we talk to, all of that influences our thinking. And so it's very easy for that mindset to begin to make its way into the church. One of the things that we can see in our culture is that the church in our age has become remarkably callous to sin. For many Christians, sin is something that can be taken lightly, right? Or even laughed about. We can watch movies and listen to music that celebrate, actually celebrate immorality. You see, for some Christians, sin has even become a form of entertainment. Some professing believers have even joined in the, the ideology and the philosophy of the world, believing that, that sin is really just culturally defined. Uh, you know, that's what the world says. There, there really is no sin. It's just whatever everyone says is wrong is wrong. Whatever culture you live in, they kind of decide what the sins are. And, and many Christians have, have bought into uh, that, that idea. What the Bible once condemned as sinful, now we just say, well, that was what they thought then. That, that was in their culture and in their time. But in our time, it's different. We define things differently. So that's no longer sin. And that's obviously the way the world thinks, but, but for many Christians, that's the way that we have begun to think as well. Even for some, what I would say, more serious Christians in, in our culture, those who still believe that sin is bad and that God's Word actually does still define what sin is, even among them, there's sort of a softness regarding sin. We just shouldn't make too big of a deal about it, Right? Many Christians have adopted what, what we might call the Caleb version of Christianity that is always positive, always encouraging, right? There's a reason that Caleb, that, that, that's their uh, uh, kind of branding that, that they use because they're branding to what they know the culture wants, right? Positive, encouraging, all the time. No sin. Don't talk about sin. Don't say anything uh, that, that will go against what, what I want, Sometimes even pastors and Christian leaders can seemingly downplay the significance of sin uh, by giving sort of a, an, an incomplete theological picture. You see, you can so emphasize one truth and neglect other truths that, that people are left with the impression that sin doesn't really matter. Let me tell you what I mean. If, if I only preach about the grace of God, and if I only preach about the love of God, if I only ever tell people God loves you unconditionally or who you are, if I only preach texts that remind us of God's keeping his people and texts that, that are meant to, to give assurance, then people will inevitably have an imbalanced view because that's those things are all true. They're all true, not denying any of them, but that's one, one part of the picture. See, if I never preach... Or, or we never think as Christians about the severity of God's judgment. If we never talk about it, if we never think about how Christians are called to persevere through difficult trials or, or even undergo the discipline of God. If I never preach or we never talk about texts that call believers to a life of holiness, then people will begin to assume that sin really is no big deal. And no matter what I do, no matter how I live, God loves me and everything's always perfectly wonderful with, with me. That is an imbalanced and I would say unbiblical 
deity. You see, to be biblical, in order to be biblical, we've got to take all of what the Bible says, and, and sometimes there are tensions there, and we've got to hold all of those tensions together. We can, we can be wrong just by holding on to one part of the truth. This morning, we are in one of those texts that ought to balance out our view of sin. And it's so important for us to hear warnings like the warning that we have this morning. Otherwise, we'll just simply be swept away with the current of the culture. And we'll turn around and we'll realize we're a hundred miles away from the truth before we ever realize it. So we need texts like this. This is a challenging text this morning. It's a difficult text, but we're preaching through the Bible like we ought to do because we want to hear everything that the Bible says. And so this is a text that we need this morning. And the key idea that I want us to take away from this text this morning, and I think the key idea that is in this text, is that sin is dangerous. Sin is dangerous. And it's not just dangerous for the world out there. You know, sometimes Christians still, we can condemn the world and we can look at their sin. But listen, we need to understand, our sin is dangerous. That sin is dangerous for us. Let's look at this text this morning. I think what we'll see is that there are four reasons in this text, at least, at least the way that I'm looking at it here, there are four reasons that we can say that sin is dangerous. The first is this. Sin is dangerous because it is deliberate, high-handed rebellion against God. Sin for Christians is dangerous because it is deliberate, high-handed rebellion against God. You see this in, in verse number 26, the first verse. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. The, the particular danger warned about in, in this section it, it is not the occasional stumble that is inevitable for the inevitable part of, of every Christian life, but it is this persistent, willful sin that is indicative of really unbelievers. So notice a few things just about the, that little expression there that we just read. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. So the first thing that we see in that is that it's ongoing. If we go on doing this, some translations... May, may just say if we sin. Uh, but but the reason this ESV that I'm using here, the reason it translates it in this way, if we go on sinning, it is because it's trying to capture the, the idea of the verb that is here, which is a present continual action. It, it's actually a, a present active participle, which means it's an action that's happening now, and it's an ongoing action. So, so if we go on sinning, it's, it's perpetual, it's a continuous action. In other words, it's a lifestyle. You see, there's a difference in the Christian life between someone who might temporarily stumble into sin and someone who says, no, this is the path that I'm walking. This is my life. This is what I'm choosing. This is what I'm doing. I'm living this way. This is talking about that kind of ongoing sin. It's unrepentant sin. It's the kind of sin that John talks about when we went through uh, the book of 1 John. No one who abides in him, who abides in the Lord, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. It's ongoing sin, but it's also willful sin. It's willful sin. Here, here he says, if we go on sinning deliberately, the, the word deliberately means with intention. It means willingly, 
voluntarily. Donald Guthrie says about this word uh, that, that it places the emphasis on responsible sin. The kind of sin into which people enter with their eyes open. This isn't an, this isn't an error, a lapse in judgment. This is, I know this is wrong. I, I know God doesn't want me to do this. And I'm doing it anyway. And I'm going to keep doing it. This is the way that I want to live my life. And I'm not submitting to God. And I'm not going to listen to what the church has to say. This is what I want to do with my life. That's the kind of sin that we're talking about. A couple things that, that emphasize that this willful aspect. One is just the fact that the very first word in this sentence in, in the original language is, is this word willful, this, this word for deliberate. Uh, and, and in the Greek language that emphasizes whatever the first word is often it is meant to emphasize. That's where the emphasis is placed. But, but not only that, he explains further when he says in verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth. You see, you understand the, uh, the deliberateness of this. I've received the truth. I've heard messages on this. I know what God's word says. I know what God expects of me. And I'm doing it anyway. In chapter 6, in that, that morning passage, uh, that was another one of those really hard warning passages in Hebrew. In, in chapter 6, he speaks of those who have been enlightened and those who have tasted of the goodness of the word of God. And here he speaks of those then uh, who have received the knowledge of the truth. And so it's a willful sin. This is what you need to understand. This is the danger in it. Because the Bible speaks very severely about those who know what is wrong, but who continue to go forward with it. The, the Bible is very clear. In fact, this, this uh, whole passage here uh, really points back to and references uh, numbers in the, in the law, in the book of Numbers chapter 15. And I'll just read this, verse number 30. It says this, but the person who does anything with a high hand, with a high hand, that means willful, right? Whether he's a maiden or a sojourner, whoever does that, reviles the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. That's, that's the passage that's really cited in, in our passage. It goes back to the law. So this is high-handed rebellion. This is, this is the child who looks at you and you tell them, do not do that. And then they go right forward anyway. Right? That's what we're doing with God. We've heard the messages. We've read the scripture. Uh, we, we've heard it repeatedly. We know that we're not supposed to do this. And we say, this is what I'm going to do. And this is the life that I'm going to live anyway. And, and that kind of sin, the Bible, uh, it makes very clear that God deals severely with that. This is the kind of sin that Adam committed. All the way back to the beginning, but well, this wasn't a big deal. Adam eating his fruit. What was what was up? It was high-handed rebellion. God spoke to him directly and said, "Adam, don't do this." And he says, "God, I'm going to do it anyway. I, I want to do it." And in fact, the interesting thing that we see in First Timothy two fourteen is is that it makes the case that Adam was deceived. Adam, or Eve rather, was deceived. She was tricked by the serpent into eating this. But, but the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14 says, Adam was not deceived. He knew what he was doing. God had spoken to Adam directly, and he had 
given Adam the command, do not eat of this tree. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. He knew that, and he did it anyway. It was high-handed rebellion. God deals very severely with that kind of sin. In fact, there is no mercy for that kind of sin. There is no pardon that we're going to see for that kind of sin. Paul says of himself that he actually received mercy because his sin of persecuting the church, he did ignorantly and unbelievably. There was not that willful intent there. It would have been different, I think, what he's making the point, and that's in 1 Timothy 1.13. Uh, it would have been different if, if God had revealed himself to him, if Jesus had revealed himself to him, and Paul said, no, I'm still going to persecute the church. Jesus, I don't care if you say uh, have called me out of this, I'm going to continue and persist in this. Uh, it, Paul's sin was not that kind of sin. The danger for you and the danger for me this morning here is that if you choose a life of ongoing, unrepentant sin, you are doing it willful at this point. You see, what this passage is really describing is the sin of apostasy that we've talked about. That is, a, a professing believer who turns away from the Lord, knowing, having full knowledge of the truth, having understood who Christ is and what the Word requires of them, who then turns away and goes back to a life of unrepentant sin. That's what this passage is talking about. Tom Schreiner says this, sinning deliberately doesn't refer to any and every sin committed. The author has in mind apostasy, the, the rejection of the Christian faith. Those who repent of the evil demonstrate that they aren't guilty of, of this apostasy that we're warning against here. And, and so this is what it's saying here. We, we struggle with sin, we, we stumble in sin, and we go to God and we seek His forgiveness. That's not the kind of sin that we're talking about. This is, this is another category where in which a person says, I'm, I'm done with that. I, this is the life I'm going to live. I'm going to pursue this, and I know I shouldn't pursue it. I know God's Word says I'm not supposed to do this. I, I, I've heard those things, but I'm going to continue to do it anyway. The person who commits that kind of sin, this passage says, will not find mercy. Will not find mercy. You, you can see this same concept, and we won't read it now, but in 1 Peter 2, 20 through 22, so sin is dangerous because it is this kind of high-handed rebellion. Secondly, sin is dangerous because it makes Christ's death of no effect to us. Sin is dangerous because it makes Christ's death of no effect or no use for us. Look at verse number 26 once more. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. The, the reason it, it makes Christ's death of no effect is because willful sin shows that we have not truly trusted in Christ. You see, the sacrifice of Christ, how, how do we receive the sacrifice of Christ? How do we procure the benefits for the death of Christ for ourselves? How do we make it our own? Well, the Bible tells us that we are to repent, we are to turn from our sins, and believe in Jesus Christ. That's, that's what we're called to. If you want to be saved, repent of your sins, turn from your sins, and believe in Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. But when a person 
persist in willful sin, they're demonstrating that they've never repented and believed in Christ. The, the only qualification for receiving the gift of forgiveness from Christ is repentance and faith. But the person who hears the truth about Christ and their sin and seemingly responds in a positive manner, yes, I, I believe that, but then you persist in sin is not a person who has believed in Christ. What this needs to remind all of us is that we can profess one thing with our mouth and do something very different with our life, right? The Bible is clear that when it comes to salvation, our, the, the testimony of our lives must bear out the profession of our mouth. You can say all day long, I believe in Jesus, I'm trusting in Jesus, but if your life does not correspond to that profession, then the profession is useless. Right? This is what James was teaching in James chapter 2, verse 14, when he says that faith without works is dead. It's, it's useless. It will not save a person. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save them? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. He goes on to say, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. What he's, he's making very clear here is that what you say with your mouth, the profession of faith that you met, make, must correspond with must have a corresponding life of good deeds that bear that out. Right? Otherwise, that faith is not genuine. Jesus condemned the, the, the religious people of his day. He says, You honor me. With your lips, but your heart is far from you. What you're saying with your mouth doesn't correspond with what's going on in your heart. Paul also warned against false professors in Titus 1.16. He says they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. And that's what this passage is talking about. This is talking about people who profess to know Christ, who profess to believe in Christ, but they're going on in deliberate, persistent sin. There's a disconnect there. That's not genuine faith. So the person who does that is a person who is outside of the saving effects of Jesus Christ. You can say, I believe in Christ. You can say, I'm trusting in Christ. But, but if your life is not transformed, uh, if you're going on in persistent sin, then the, the work of Christ on the cross has not been applied to your life. There is no sacrifice for your sins. You're not forgiven that's why sin is a dangerous thing. The sin of apostasy worn about is, is not only when a person consciously declares, I'm no longer a Christian, right? That's what we think. The sin of apostasy can be committed by the person who continues to profess faith in Christ verbally, but whose life says the complete opposite. This, this is the danger for you. If you, here, this one, if you persist in sin, willful, deliberate sin, I know this is wrong, I know God doesn't want me to do it, and I'm not giving it up, this is my life, this is who I am, this is what I want to do, you will place yourself outside the saving benefits of Jesus' sacrifice. Sin is dangerous. Thirdly, this morning, sin is dangerous because it is an outrageous response to the grace of God. 
in the cross of Christ. Sin is a dangerous is dangerous because it is an outrageous response to the grace of God in the cross of Christ. Notice here there there are three things uh, that that are listed here in verse twenty nine that describe what a person is doing who is professing faith in Christ, but then is living a life of persistent, willful, uh, deliberate sin. There are three very powerful pictures that are given. The first one in verse 29 is that you are trampling underfoot the Son of God. This kind of sin, in other words, one person says, not only falls from grace, but it mocks the giver of grace. There were, as I read, you know, what does this mean to trample underfoot the Son of God? There, there were different uh, historical ideas that, that people held out. But, but I think this is universally understood as just an act of disgust and contempt. If I'm trampling on the Son of God, I have no concern for Him. I, I, have, I have nothing but contempt for Him. And that's what the person is doing. Uh, when they when they profess faith in Christ, but then live a life of deliberate sin, they are trampling underfoot the Son of God, showing no concern, no love, no gratefulness, no gratitude, nothing but disgust and contempt for the Son of God. The second thing that he says a person is going to who lives this way is profaning the blood of Christ that was given to sanctify us. Donald Guthrie says this about what we profane. It, it could be rendered common to make something common. In, in the Old Testament, right, to, to sanctify something was to set it apart as special, as unique, as holy, right? To profane something meant that this is just common. It's everyday use. It's, it's not to be, it, there's nothing special about it. So that's what, what it could mean here, to profane the blood of Christ. It's like, no big deal. There's, there's nothing special about the death of, of Christ. So it could be rendered common in the sense of treating Christ's blood as no different from any other man's blood. But the more positive rendering of the words in, in the sense of regarding as unholy is more probable. And he goes on to say this, anyone adopting such a view would in fact be utterly despising the work of Christ. And I think that's what it's saying here. It, it's more than just well, the blood of Christ, the death of Christ is nothing special. Uh, in, in a sense, it, it's actually despising the work of Christ on the cross. Would you stop and think about it? Think, if, you, if you really truly think through this, this is the Son of God come to this earth to live the perfect life and then die for your sins, to save you, to redeem you, and to remove the wrath of God from, from off of you. And you say, yes, I believe that. Yes, I'm trusting in Jesus to save me from the wrath of God. But I'm just going to continue to go on with this sin. I, I just want to keep doing this. This is just my thing. This is the way I am. My dad was this way and I'm this way. And I'm just going to do this. Or, or really, I, I don't want anybody telling me how to live my life. This is what I want to do. You're profaning the blood of Christ. You're saying, the Son of God died to deliver me from these kinds of actions. But I'm just going to go do them anyway. It's profaning the blood of Christ. Christ means nothing. And then thirdly, he says that you've outraged the spirit of grace. Verse 29, you have outraged the spirit of, of grace. This is pretty self-evident. It is outrageous to treat such a gift of grace with such contempt 
and such scorn. Just, just imagine that I walk up to you and, and I say, hey, I know you've been struggling. I know you, you've lost your job. And, and we've collected here at church, we've, we've all pitched in a lot of money. And, and we actually have, have, have built a brand new home for you. And, and here are the keys. And, and it's yours. And the title is free and clear. And you take the keys out of my hand, slap me in the face, and then go burn the house down. That's outrageous. Nobody would do that, would they? No, no one in their right mind, someone would have to be a lunatic to do something like that. You would be forever grateful. You, you, you would be saying, thank you so much. I, I, this is unimaginable that someone would do something so kind and so gracious to me. You all didn't have to do this. This is wonderful. Right? That's, that's the normal response. And so it is when we think about Christ dying for us to pay for our sins and to deliver us from our sins. And, and we say, well, we're going to take that gift and then we're just going to go right back out and do the very sins that were the cause of the death of Christ. It, it's like doing that, right? It's outrageous. You have outraged the spirit of grace. This is unbelievable. Sin is dangerous because it, it, it is an outrageous response to the grace of God in the cross of Jesus Christ. Fourthly, sin is dangerous because it brings a certain judgment of God. Sin is dangerous because it brings the certain judgment of God. We need to hear this this morning. Church, we, this, this is for us. This isn't just for the people out in the world who are, yes, sin is going to fall on them or judgment is going to fall on their sin. But listen, if you choose this kind of sin, this persistent, willful, disobedience to God, God's judgment is going to fall on you. God's judgment would fall on me if, if I were to choose this kind of life. Just look at look at this. It's, this whole passage is warning us of this danger of God's judgment. First of all, we've just seen that there remains no more sacrifice for sin. If that's our choice, if that's the way that we live, there's no sacrifice for sin. If there's no sacrifice for your sin, that means that God's judgment is on you rather than being on Christ. There's no sacrifice for your sin. But verse 27, what is left then for this person for whom there is no sacrifice? Verse 27 tells us, but there is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Uh, the same judgment of, uh, of fire that is coming on the world will come upon you. That's all that remains if there's no sacrifice left for sin. That's, that's what you have, an expectation that God's judgment will come upon you. And then in verses 28 through 29, there's a, a lesser to greater comparison, right? He says, if under the old covenant, in verse 28, a person who rejected the law of Moses and lived, went off into a life of sin, they, they would be put to death. And, and if that happened under this lesser period of time, under this lesser uh, law of God, then what about this greater reality to Christ? Well, what about the person who would understand Christ, understand the gospel, and then would set aside faith in Jesus Christ? What would happen to that person? The implication is that something worse than death, you, you, you do understand there is something worse than physical death. 
Right? There is eternal punishment. There is eternal judgment. And I think that's the only thing that we could understand in verses 28 and, and 29. If they receive physical death as a punishment for setting aside the law of Moses, what will happen to the person who sets aside Christ and lives a life of sin? It's something worse than death. It's, it's a worse punishment. Look at verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? And then verses 30 and 31 speak again of the judgment of God, the vengeance of God. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Sin is dangerous this morning because if you choose a life of sin, a life of willful, persistent, unrepentant sin, you will certainly come under the judgment of God. That is a fearful thing. There's nothing worse so sin is dangerous. Well, how do we avoid this danger this morning? We just have some application here. How do we avoid that? It would, it would be one thing just to put this out here and say this is this is the danger. But, but I think what we should all be thinking is, well, I want to avoid that danger. I, I don't want to go off in a life of sin. So, so what do I do? Well, first, this is sort of broad application. Uh, is simply let the Bible inform your way of thinking about sin and, and your salvation rather than the world or immature Christians. Right? If you just take the world's view about sin, it's no big deal. That, that's where we started this morning. And, and if you take the, the view of many immature Christians, many people who profess faith in Christ, sin is no big deal. It's okay. God will forgive you. It's all good. Just live how you want to live and you're going to go to heaven. Everything will be fine. But listen, what we need to do if we want to avoid this certain judgment from coming upon us, then, then we need to allow the Word of God to shape our minds rather than the world or immature Christians. When you do that, when you allow the Word of God to begin to shape your mind, you will begin to see things uh, like the seriousness of sin. You see, there's simply no way there is no way you can consistently read and study the Bible and come away with any other thought than that I ought to hate sin and that I ought to fight sin with, with, in my life with every ounce of energy I have. That's what reading the Bible will do. If you saturate your mind in the Word of God, you're not going to be casual about sin. You're not going to be comfortable and just persisting in your sin. It's going to continually call you out of it and warn you. And it's going to hold Christ out in front of you so that you want to live for Christ. Second, we need to dwell and meditate on the beauty of Christ and the glorious grace of the gospel. The Christian who is sinning is one who is not rightly or often enough thinking about what Christ has done He's, he's come to view the death of Christ as contemptible or with scorn. It's a, it's a small thing. Understanding and meditating on the grace of God in Christ will lead you to hate your sin and it will propel you forward in the fight against it. That's actually what these verses are doing. Is that these, these verses are giving 
as God's means so that you don't go off into sin. Right? We've talked about that before in these warning passages. What do warnings do? They, they, they warn us, don't go there. Right? God is going to keep his people. God's people are forever secure. But one of the ways God keeps his people is by warning them, don't, don't run away. Don't go off into this life of sin. The same way that we do with our children. I watch my children, I protect them. One of the ways that I protect them is warning them, don't run in the street or you get hit by a car. That's what God is doing. Don't live a life of sin or my judgment will come upon you. But he's keeping us through that. And so one of the things that he's doing is just helping us see Christ and helping us have our minds brought back to Christ again and to, to remember what Christ has done. And, and if I choose this, I'm really trampling underfoot the Son of God. I'm profaning His blood and I'm outraging the Spirit of grace. All that He's done for me. That's what I just want. And so, so we need to allow our minds just to be focused on Christ on a daily basis, on a regular basis. Like you can't have an image of Christ dying for you for your sins. You can't have that fresh in your mind and, and, and then just persist in your sin. If you do, I'm not sure that you really understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Other writers use this same reasoning. Paul says in Romans 12, when I appeal to you, therefore, brother, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies and living sacrifice. You see, the motivation for the Christian life is to see Christ and what he's done and to be propelled to live for him because of what he's done for you. Well, first Peter 1, 17 through 19, where, where the apostle Peter reminds us, you were not purchased by perishable things like silver or gold, but you were purchased by the precious blood of Christ. Therefore, live a holy life. That, that's what he says in those verses. Live a holy life because you've been purchased by the precious blood of Christ. The heart that regularly looks on Christ and remembers his great sacrifice on their behalf is the person who will find it easier to not sin. Third, we need to not stop thinking about the judgment of God. Do not stop thinking about the judgment of God. Yes, the preeminent motivation. What, what drives us in the Christian life? The preeminent motivation is remembering what Christ has done for us and then living in gratitude. That's, that's really what that would be the preeminent thought of our mind. And yet, this does not eliminate as another motivator the fear of judgment of God. This text seeks to motivate Christians to persevere by having them consider the possibility of eternal judgment. Yes, we should be thinking first and foremost about what Christ has done for us and the grace that God has poured out on us, but we should also be thinking, if I go on sinning, I'm going to fall under the judgment of God. And that should be a motivator for the Christian life as well. You see, it's not either or. I can either think about God's grace and let that motivate me, or I, I can think about God's judgment. There's there's a new song out. The the, the uh, I don't know how new it is. I heard it recently. It's a, it's got a good tune. Like it's catchy, right? I get it. But but it says something like the only thing that really ever motivated me anyway is is your grace. Yeah, that's the primary motivation. The Christian, you ought to have the fear of the Lord as well. You ought to have a, a fear of God's judgment upon you. The book of Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Jesus said in Matthew 10, don't fear the one who can kill the body, but fear the one who can cast both body and soul into hell. 
Proverbs 8 13 says, The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Do you want to hate evil? Do you want to despise evil? Do you want to avoid this life of sin that would bring God's judgment upon you? If you want to do that, you need to have the fear of the Lord. If I know that food has been poisoned, I don't care how good it smells. I don't care if it's my favorite dish. I, I don't care, uh, you know, how hungry I am. If I know it's been poisoned, I'm not going to eat it. All right? And, and that's the way we need to think about sinning. If, if we have a right understanding of the fear of the Lord and the fact that God's judgment is going to come upon the person who does this thing, I don't care how attractive it looks. I don't care how much I want to do it. I don't care how much my flesh is enticing me in that direction. If I really have a fear of the Lord, I'm going to hate evil. Fourthly, we're going to overcome this. We need to fight sin. Now, this is this might be obvious, but it needs to be said. We need to fight against sin. If we are not going to deliberately go on sinning, like we talked about, we need to engage ourselves in a fight against our sin. It, it isn't just a matter of calmly deciding, you know, I'm not going to sin anymore. Well, Brother Andrew said that we should not deliberately go on sinning. So, yeah, that makes sense. I'm not going to do it anymore, right? No, it's a battle, right? Because as I've just described, we have a sinful flesh that's inclining us in that way. We have the world that is is sort of saying, this is what you ought to do. And, and, and then we have the devil enticing us and tempting us. We, we've got three enemies all seeking to thrust us into a life of sin, and it seems so natural. And so if we're not going to do that, it's going to involve us in, in a fight, in, in a battle. So we need to do that. Paul says that we are, in Romans chapter 8, to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We are to mortify, like the way the King James says it, right? You're to mortify the deeds of the flesh. Put them to death. That's battle. That's, that, that's violent language. John Owen said, we must be killing sin, or sin will be killing us. There's no room in the Christian life for the thought, I know this is wrong, but I'm just going to indulge in it anyway. I'm just going to be comfortable with my my pride or my gossip or my slander or my anger, my sinful disputes, my jealousy, my lust, my adultery, my hatred, my abusive language, getting drunk, gluttony, laziness, disrespect toward leaders, materialism, living just for the pleasure and entertainment of this world, then there's no room in the Christian life just to get comfortable and coexist with those things. You need to be battling them every day. One of the marks of a truly mature Christian is, is that that person gets to a point where they really kind of understand what their sin of choice is, so to speak. Sometimes we, we refer to them as besetting sins. It's not a matter that I couldn't sin in other ways. I, I could, but I know that these areas are sins that, that I struggle with particularly. And so we go to a war with them. We identify them. And, and then we go to a war with them. Get in the Word of God. Meditate and memorize scriptures that speak directly to the sin that we're struggling with. We're, we're constantly vigilant about what's going into our heart and what's going on in our heart. So we guard our heart. We don't let a bunch of junk come in there that's going to inflame sins. And if you have the sin, if you struggle with lust, right, you don't watch movies that are just going to inflame that, right? That would be foolish. If you struggle with anger, you don't sit around and gossip about the person so, so that that's just inflaming your anger. You're, you're careful about what's going on in your heart and what's going into your heart. So we're vigilant about our heart. We pray 
we draw near to God. We ask brothers and sisters for counseling to join us in prayer, to hold us accountable. In fact, you notice in verses 24 and verse 25 what, what we talked about last week. How we are not to isolate ourselves, we're not to stop meeting together, but, but we're to encourage and exhort one another, to stir one another up to love and good works. That's a vital part of overcoming sin. And then we are to take radical steps if necessary. This morning, we need to understand Christians, church, church especially us. We don't need to get so comfortable with the idea that, that everything's good no matter what I, I do. Okay? We need to understand that sin is a danger to us. Any one of us here, if we were to turn away from Christ and to persist in a life of unrepentant, would come under God's judgment. So let me just encourage you that there may be a couple, a couple different things going on here. One, you may sort of be in that place where you Maybe God is uncomfortable and saying, I would just encourage you, recognize the danger that you're in, right? Repent of that, turn back to the Lord, and renew your efforts in fighting against that sin today, right now. I've, I've got to do that on a regular basis. That, that's something that, that happens to me all the time, and I've got to remind myself, this is dangerous. I can't continue to do this. I can't go in this path, and I, I'm in the Word, and it brings conviction through the Spirit of God, and I say, I've got to go back. I've got to, I've got to turn my life around you. That might be you. Brothers, maybe you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, the, the judgment of God is going to come on your sin. If you've never believed in Christ, I would encourage you to believe in Him today. That, that's all you have to do. It's not a matter of your good works. It's, it's not a matter of proving that you're good enough. It's just simply turning from your sin and believing and trusting in Jesus Christ and you will receive the gift of salvation. And I would encourage you to do that this morning. Don't delay it. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We are so grateful, even for words of warning. Lord, they are hard. They are challenging sometimes. Uh, but Lord, we would not want to go comfortably into your judgment. Uh, Lord, we would, we would rather be afflicted now made uncomfortable now so that we might avoid an eternity of your judgment. God, I pray for each one here. I, I know that perhaps there are believers who, like me at times, begin to ease into their sins of choice, who, who begin to get comfortable in a life of sin. And I pray that through your Holy Spirit right now, that, that you would bring conviction upon them, that they would that they would feel in a tangible sense the, the danger that they are in, Lord, and that they would flee to you, that they would run from their sin, and that they would trust in Christ today. We ask this in the name of God.